Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, Elvis fans from around the world, welcome, 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 welcome to another episode of Shaping Elvis. I am Josh Ward, right here in WTVA Podcast Studios, just down the road from the birthplace of Elvis Presley, here in King City, Tupelo, Mississippi. All right, first off, very first thing, you ever notice when you maybe listen to yourself? I don't know if you listen to yourself that often. Do you ever just kind of, you know, say something and you hear yourself say it and then you have to turn around and like, wait a minute, that was that was not right. I have to say something right now uh, and get this out of the air. I probably don't because I haven't been corrected on it yet. However... I heard it and it just like, I just heard it and just cringed. Um, Last episode, and like I said, I haven't been corrected on it, but I have to correct myself. Because you, Mr. or Miss Elvis fan listening now, I'm sure you caught it right away. Lickety split, if you will. And, uh, (laughs) you know, I've heard it over and over. I shouldn't even bring it up. But I've heard it, the story, over and over and over. I'm talking about when I was talking to the man who was playing Mr. Bobo during the Tupelo Hardware reenactment at the Elvis Fest. And I caught myself saying Bilbo. There is no L in his name. It's Bobo. Mr. Bobo. So there you go. I guess I was wrong, so I am sorry about that. But this week, we're starting from the beginning. I had the pleasure of talking with Mr. Roy Turner. He is a local historian. Uh, As he and I both say, we're kind of a jack-of-all-trades. I went to his house. It was a beautiful summer afternoon. I think summer had just started when we had this conversation And, um, you know, we decided, hey, let's go out on the back porch on the deck under the shade tree and do that here. I said, heck yes, because that's how we do in the South. Uh, You know, I've often made the comment and, and joked around how the northern folks often laugh at us during the wintertime when it snows and we shut everything down. So I always say I invite them to come here in the South in July, more so August, and sip sweet tea with us on the front porch, you know, just to see how long they would go. Nevertheless, we uh, sat on the back porch and had the interview. Again, this is back when I am just starting this whole thing, and I still forgot the windscreen. So... Here's what's going to happen. The majority of this episode will be from Mr. Roy Turner, but there's going to be some parts here and there where I will have to come in and say what he was saying because the wind just absolutely killed that segment. Um, Right here in my hand is the transcription. So there will be a couple of times where I will do that. Also, I want to 
put this out here. You can go to Tupelo Hardware. I'm very certain you can probably go to Amazon. Yes, you can go to Amazon and pick up a book called The Roots of Elvis Presley by Julian C. Riley. Now, I got my copy in my hand uh, at the Tupelo Hardware. Actually, it's on loan from Miss Connie. Uh, <laughs> but I will be getting my copy from Tupelo Hardware. Let me tell you something. The majority of the stuff that I will tell you came from this book. Um, it is just an absolute awesome read. Uh, it's got, and I'm serious about this, it's got pretty much everything you wanted to know about young Elvis and where he came from, his um, ancestors and whatnot. And it was very eye-opening for me because, you know, I live in Northeast Mississippi as well, and I didn't realize that a lot of Elvis's ancestors are buried here. Um, even like aunts, I'm talking about aunts, uncles, great grandparents, uh, grandparents, that kind of thing. Um, very, very eye opening and a very good read. I definitely recommend The Roots of Elvis Presley by Julian C. Riley. I'm not going to go too far in the genealogy. I'm just going to go Vernon and Gladys right now. Elvis's father, Vernon Elvis Presley, uh, he was born on April the 10th in 1916, right over here in Fulton, Mississippi. His mom and dad, Elvis's great-grandparents, was Jesse D. Presley and Minnie Mae Hood Presley. Now, everybody probably knows her as Dodger. And if you don't know that story, Dodger got her nickname from Elvis because he threw a ball at her and she dodged. Get it, Dodger. Elvis's mother, Gladys Love Smith, was born on April 25th, 1912. That's right. Gladys was older than Vernon. She was born in Pontotoc County and her father was Robert Lee Smith. Everybody called him Bob. And... Her mom was named Doll, D-O-L-L, Doll. My Southern draw coming out there. Again, try to check out the book. Try to find the book, The Roots of Elvis Presley by Julian C. Riley. I think you'll enjoy it. Uh, so let's get right into it. We're going to talk about Vernon and Gladys this episode. And uh, I'll just let Mr. Roy Turner take it away. Well, my name is Roy Turner. Uh... I never really meant to be this Elvis fan or childhood historian or whatever I'm referred to as. It kind of just fell in my lap and it, it fit, so I guess it was in God's plan. I discovered that if you ever get your name in a book, it starts a domino effect. <laughs> then another author calls and another author and then the filmmaker started calling and blah, blah, blah. And it just mushroomed. To where I had to learn about Elvis because I was exposed to him every time I turned around or exposed to stories about him. And uh, finally, one day, uh, my buddy, Jim Palmer, said, why don't we, well, maybe I said it, one of us said, why don't we make our own video, our own documentary? We'd helped so many, setting up interviews, setting up location shots, doing the research to, to find the people that had never been interviewed before. And that was the fun part, finding new folks with new stories. 
So we made this little documentary called Homecoming, Tupelo Welcomes Elvis Home, which we premiered at the 2006 Elvis Festival, unknowingly th that that just happened to be the 50th anniversary of that Homecoming concert. So again, I think God was up there pulling the strings. And through my association with Pat Raspberry and volunteering for the F Tupelo Film Commission, I met a guy out in California by the name of Michael Rose and was telling him about our documentary. And he said, well, when you get it finished, send me a copy and I'll see if I can shop it around and see what we can do. And it wound up being reshot as uh, Elvis returned to Tupelo. It airs on the Biography Channel every January and every August, I'm told. I always hear about it the day after. And then, you know, then Peter Goralnik, uh, when he got ready to write uh, Careless Love, he called Elaine Dundee, who I had helped with Elvis and Gladys, and said, you know, I'm going to write this book. It's really not a conflict against what you did, but could you give me some tips? And she said, yeah, I'll call Roy Turner. And he did, and he came to Tupelo, and I, I helped him by just introducing him to folks and you know a northerner trying to break the ice down here is always tough they need somebody <laughs> to get them in the door right and that was the biggest part i played in careless love but it just you know one one after the other and one after the other and one after the other and it was like a snowball i couldn't stop it and i started having fun well i had fun from the beginning but it became more and more fun because i love people and i got to meet some really interesting people that i would have never cross paths with us had it not been for Elvis and that common thing that we shared. Well, like I said, you know, I didn't plan on being this Elvis historian, but in 1981, um, a lady by the name of Elaine Dundee came to Tupelo from London to write the biography on Elvis, which became her book, Elvis and Gladys, which really centered on their relationship and that maternal line, genealogically speaking. Um, Elaine had written uh, a bestseller on the actor Peter Finch and her publisher wanted her to do one on the Beatles and she said no I don't like the Beatles but Elvis his voice and what little I know of his story fascinates me and to tell the story, I've got to go to the source of the Nile, and that's Tupelo, Mississippi. So with that, they gave her a very nice advance, and she came to Tupelo with her friends telling her, don't go, they're heathens down there, they're still barefoot, you'll be attacked as soon as you get off the plane. But she came anyway, she got here on a Saturday and Sunday morning, she was sitting in the First Assembly of God Church listening to Brother Frank Smith, Elvis's childhood preacher, deliver a sermon. Um, she stayed five months, and she asked her local library if uh, there was somebody interested in local history and genealogy that she could hire to help her, and they suggested me. And we just hit it off, and uh, when she went back at the end of the summer, I told her I really was sad to see her go because it had been one of the most fascinating summers of my life, and I knew I'd never see her again. She said, oh, no, we're going to work together again. And I thought she's just blowing smoke at me, but we did. We became lifelong friends. But uh, Elaine knew nothing about Elvis. So she came to town with a totally clean slate, no preconceived ideas. And I think that's one thing that made Elvis and Gladys so unique. And she wanted to experience as much as what Elvis and Gladys had experienced as she could. She was born and raised on Park Avenue in New York, a very wealthy family. 
after college had gone to Paris and was an actress and later to London and became a best-selling author. She was married to a theater critic and, and ran with theater people. And uh, In fact, she said, I've always been around rich people and theater people. And I have found that ordinary people lead the most extraordinary lives. I mean, coming to Duplo was a real eye-opener for her in, in a lot of respects. I also like the part of her story that uh, the day Elvis died, she got into a cab and they had Elvis playing on the radio and she was mesmerized by his voice and asked the cabbie, her exact words were, who dat? And he said, lady, where have you been? It's Elvis, he died today. And then she went into Harrods, and they were piping Elvis music all through Harrods. And the more she heard, just the more enthralled she came with this gorgeous voice. So she said, I didn't know Elvis was alive until he was dead. And then she clarified it by saying, you know, I'd always been around theater people. We just what, weren't in that world. I knew there was an Elvis Presley. I knew he was this big hit, but I didn't know his music or had seen his films. So I really didn't know he was alive until he was dead. So she goes to the record store to buy a record. <laughs> and of all the records she could buy, she bought his, the only one he ever won a Grammy for, his gospel album. And with her being Jewish, that was a whole new experience. She, she was not familiar with any of those songs. So she started researching him. And the more she read, the more just enthralled she came with that story and wanting to really get to the story. So with that lack of Elvis background, she came to Tupelo, this empty slate and we filled it. So uh, she went back to London. It took her four years to write the book. I continued to find people and interview them. We'd talk once or twice a week. So when it came out, she dedicated the book to me. And I was very honored. She told me, she said, it's as much your book as mine because you put so much into it. She actually gave me a, a little percentage of the royalties, but I doubt if I could have bought a Hershey bar with, with my share. It was so small. But uh, then when my third daughter was born, we named her Catherine Elaine after Elaine because I kind of wanted to honor her. And then she wanted to be Katie's godmother. And like I say, we became lifelong friends. That was the start of my Elvis world. But you know, when Elaine died in 2008, I was executor of her estate. And uh, she, she left instructions for me to set up an endowment here in Tupelo, which has become the Elaine Dundee and Roy Turner Endowment for the Arts. And in her words, she said, I want to leave money to expose the little Elvises to the arts in Tupelo. And that's what we do with it. Uh, we started in 09 with $600,000. and. At the end of last year, it had uh, grown to a million and forty-three thousand. After I've given away twenty-eight to thirty thousand dollars every year, and that's why I say I am a poor philanthropist. I have no money, but I get to give away a lot of money. <laughs> it's a good feeling, but. Uh, it's funny how all because of Elvis, so many things would change in my life. So I owe him a lot. But most of all, I owe him all the interesting people he brought into my life. From fans, to famous people, to authors, to filmmakers, just the whole gamut. Uh, an interesting, eclectic bunch of people I would have never crossed paths with had it not been for old Elvis. It was at this point when I asked Roy about Vernon and Gladys, you know, how they met were they dating when did they get married when did they expect twins it was also at this point when the wind started to pick up well let's go back even a little further okay go ahead you know uh gladys 
herself had aspirations to be a film star. And her favorite movie star was Clara Bow, who was the it girl in the 20s. And there was a fellow around here named Charlie Moore, who would, uh, among many things, he was a lot like us, he was a jack of all trades. But he would, uh, he had a flatbed truck with a movie screen and projector, and he would take it to various communities and show the movies. And Gladys saw those movies. And at, they would have barn dances back then at various people's uh, farms for their entertainment. And I know one of her contemporaries, one of her friends, told us uh, Elvis got it honest, Gladys had rhythm. And one of her things she was known for was her buck dancing. Do you know what buck dancing is? Yeah, well, she was supposedly a really good buck dancer. Um, her sister Lillian, her mother and daddy, Bob and Doll Smith, had uh, five girls before they had two boys. And they were sharecroppers. So that was a curse in itself, not having some boys to work the fields, but all the girls had to work the fields. But Sister Lillian said Gladys didn't. She was lazy as a hog. We'd just have to drag her to the fields. And she said it lovingly because she loved her sister to death. Gladys was, um, especially when she was young, she was quite outgoing, partying, fun-loving. She wasn't this little old hallelujah woman that so many people paint a picture of. And she did like a drink a little too much as she grew older. She actually eloped with a man before she married Vernon. And he backed out at the last minute and brought her back home. And then when she met Vernon, she was just swept off of her feet. Vernon was dashing looking, but he was what a lot of his contemporaries referred to as a near-do-well. And he had a reputation of being kind of lazy. So they eloped to Punatok, where nobody knew them, because Gladys was older than Vernon. Vernon was actually underage. And I believe, if my memory serves me right, she subtracted two years from her age, and he added two years to his age to put them at the same age or close to the same age. And so they could get the marriage certificate because he was literally underage without a uh, guardian's signature. So they started off kind of pulling the wool over everybody's eyes. I know, I know. The wind is terrible, and I am so sorry. Um, but here's the next piece of what was said. Uh, I asked Roy, how far along were they when it was discovered that they were having twins? And Roy says, when they were born. From all accounts that we got, she did not realize she was pregnant with twins. And even from the accounts that Elaine and myself got from interviewing people, Dr. Hunt delivers Jesse, who, of course, is stillborn. And everybody is weeping and sad, and they've lost the baby. And he says, wait, there's another one. And then Elvis is born. So a lot of people says that you can't not know you're not having twins. But, of course, this was some years ago. They didn't have the technology we have. And if Jesse was stillborn... Possibly there was one baby kicking around enough for her to feel. But yes, that's when they found out they were having twins at the birth. So I came back to him and I said, so I guess, and I hate to put it this way, but Jesse could have been taking the blows as Elvis was kicking so that Gladys couldn't feel anything. Is that fair to say? And Roy comes back. Sure. And you know, that moment defined both Elvis and Gladys personally. 
possibly Vernon's as well, but really theirs. Vernon and Gladys never spoke of Jesse in the past tense. Never. They always spoke of him in the present as though as he was still alive. And Elvis himself has said in interviews that he had to live twice as hard and do twice as much, be twice as good because he was living for two and there was a sense of guilt. And Elaine did a lot of study on this with college professors and doctors that have really studied twinships and what happens when one twin is out of the picture and how twins can be separated for life. And when they do find each other, they have so many things in common, so many similarities. They like the same foods. They both married blondes. They both prefer sons over daughters, even though they didn't grow up and be together. And it's amazing of all the similarities they share. Just exactly how protective was Gladys? Well, you know, we grew up with so many myths about Elvis. And all entertainers are surrounded with myths. You know, their PR people build a lot of those myths. Gladys was not this overprotective, keep you tied to the apron string mother that she was painted to be for so many years. And we came to that conclusion by interviewing Guy Harris and James Osborne and Sam Bell and other people from the, those were his childhood friends that ran with him, that snuck off with him, that got in trouble with him, got whipped with him. Uh, <laughs> broke the rules with him. You know, they would hang their clothes up on a limb and go skinny dipping and then sit in the sun and get completely dry before they put the clothes on because they would all get in trouble for swimming. So, you know, they were all in this together. Well, you can't sneak off and go skinny dipping if you're tired to the apron string. And you can't cut through the woods in Priceville Cemetery going to Tulip Creek to fish or swim if you're tied to the apron string. And when he lived at 1010 North Green, Sam Bell said they ran from one end of that part, the black neighborhood of Green Street to the other from the time they got up until dark. Everybody had to be home by dark. And if you couldn't get home by dark, you stayed with whatever family whose house you were at until your parents came and got you or even spent the night. So that tells me that is not a mother who keeps her son tied to the apron string. Where that story got started was she would walk him to school to Lawhorn every day. Now he did have to cross the highway and that could have been a concern. But what we came up with, things we were told, she wanted to be darn sure he went to school because a lot of the boys were skipping school. And she was determined he'd get an education. Elvis was the first in his family to get a high school diploma. And, and that was one of Gladys's um, desires. If you go in the Lee County Library, and display in there is Elvis's library card that he fills out on February the 13th, I think it is. Elvis has signed his name quite legibly for a 13-year-old, so it's 1948. Gladys's scrawl is barely legible. I'm sure it took a lot of courage for her to take him in there to get the library card and to sign this card and show her lack of education. But she was more determined to expose him to books than worried about showing how little education she had. So no, he was never tied to the apron string. But that doesn't mean she wasn't a warrior. Uh, James Osborne said they would be out at the creek playing and Gladys would have told them, you know, you've got to be back at two o'clock. And James said, neither one of us had a watch. And it seemed like every 15 minutes, Elvis was saying, 
Do you think it's two o'clock yet? Do you think it's two o'clock yet? The only reason he didn't want to disappoint his mother, and of course, if, if he had gone beyond two o'clock, he would have been punished, because she did whip. And uh, he might not get to go again. To Vernon now. Mm-hmm. Um, I specifically want to talk about his um, prison time. Incarceration? Yeah, prison time and okay. how he got there. You know, as I said earlier, uh, Vernon was always considered a near-do-well. He was a philanderer. He was a womanizer. He was a drinker. There was a distinction. There was a, an elderly lady we interviewed back in the 80s who was a good friend of mine by the name of Mertis Collins, and she had worked with Gladys in the shirt factory in, in what's now, I call it the old Bluebell building. It used to be the ugly chair. It's an antique shop now. And she made the comment that at the time that the Presleys were from above the highway, and there was a distinction. The people that lived south of 78 seemed to be held more in esteem than the people that lived north of the highway in East Tupelo. It's funny how every little community has its class system, whether they want to admit it or not. When Gladys has Elvis, the shirt factory takes up a collection and they let Murtis drop it off because she has to pass their house on her way home to Eggville. And they tell her, be sure and give it to her. Don't give it to him. Because they knew he'd blow it on drinking or women or whatever. So Vernon never had just a, a pristine reputation. But the incident that sent him to prison is interesting in that he and a friend named Lether Gable and Gladys's brother, and I can't remember which one it was, had a hog that they raised, and they sold it to Orville Bean. Orville Bean owned a lot of the land. He built a lot of those houses in that little community. He was a very shrewd businessman. They sell this hog to Orville Bean, and he only gives them $4, which is way below the market value. And I don't know what the market value was, but let's say it was $8, or even $6. It ticks them off. So they get the bright idea. During that time, you didn't have personalized checks. All the banks had blank checks. And you'd just get these blank checks and, and write to sign your name. And I could write you a check and sign my name. And the bank knew to take it out of my account. There weren't even account numbers. Um, so they got a blank check. Put it over the check that uh, Orville Bean gave them, held it up to a window pane, traced his signature, wrote a new check to themselves for $40, which they thought the hog was worth $40. Of course, they get caught. For some reason, the only one prosecuted and sent to prison is Vernon. The other two never do any time. So I don't know if he decided to take the blame or if he was the the ramrodder of the whole thing or what, but for whatever reason, he does go to Parchment for nine months. At that time, Gladys and Elvis have to move out of the birthplace. Elvis is three years old when this happens. Uh, Jesse Presley, Vernon's father, for some reason does not take them in. It's always been a mystery. So they go live with her relatives in South Tupelo on Maple Street. That little house is still standing. In fact, it's been up for sale with a sign outside. I think they're wanting a hundred and something thousand dollars for it because Elvis lived there. <laughs> During that time, Gladys, 
petition and Elvis's mother. Minnie Mae petition. I have copies of signed petitions in there where they went all over East Tupelo getting people to sign to send to the government to try to get Vernon um, released early. They eventually, uh, they get the local insurance man, every businessman, plus just their neighbors. They even get Orville Bean to write a letter saying that I think that Vernon Presley is a, a good young man who made a mistake, and I think he served enough time and learned his lesson, your honor, your honorable governor, whatever you call him, and I, I petition you to release him early. They sent at least two petitions, because I have two different petitions, uh, and finally the governor does um, release him early. There's a word for that, and I can't think what it's called right now. Pardon. The governor pardons him, and I got a copy of that telegram where he's been pardoned. And Vernon comes back, and I think he did learn a valuable lesson. And even Jesse, his own father, writes this pleading letter. And I have letters that Minnie Mae and um, Gladys wrote, pleading, long letters, pleading to let him go. Uh, Gladys says, you know, I'm a young mother with a child. I have no way of working and supporting my child, and I need my husband here to support us, and so on and so forth. It's a, they give a real sob story, which I'm sure was true. I don't think they were exaggerating anything, but that that's the whole six yards of it. What did Gladys and Elvis do during Vernon's prison time? Well, while Vernon was in prison, they lived in South Tupelo with her aunt and uncle. Uh, Gladys, to my knowledge, was not working during that time. The, the aunt and uncle just allowed them to stay there with them. I know Gladys was forever grateful. I guess Vernon was too, because when he comes back, he lives there also for several months before he has enough money saved up to pay down on a house, and he buys a house in East Tupelo on Berry Street. And he lives there about a year and for some reason sells it to Aaron Kennedy, who was one of the fellows they went to church with and who Elvis was named after. The Aaron in Elvis's name was named after Aaron Kennedy. And I asked some of the contemporaries, because when he sells the house on Barry, he moves over to Kelly Street and rents. And I said, you know, what happened to the money? And they said, he blew it. He was bad to go to Memphis and gamble, drink, and carry on. I'm, so I'm told. I wasn't there. But that, you know, that's the stories that have been told. And Gladys's own sister Lillian told us a lot of these stories. She, she had a real bad taste in her mouth for Vernon. Real bad taste. <laughs> she did not hold him in very much high esteem at all. Uh, and she knew him well. She had worked at Graceland answering fan mail for years. Uh, up until the time Gladys died, actually. Um, and she said after Gladys died, she never had the access to Elvis that she had while Gladys was alive. Uh, she and he used to sit at the kitchen table, and he'd just pour his heart out to her. And uh, she said after Gladys died, it was hard for her to ever even get close enough to him or alone with him to have those kind of conversations anymore. So I don't know if Vernon kind of tried to insulate him from some of Gladys's family, or maybe Lillian in particular, because Uncle Vester worked the gates for years, and Vester's daughter Patsy and Elvis were just like best running buddies for many years, and so I'd set up. But you know, Elvis employed so many of his family after he bought Graceland. I, I bet he had no less than 10 cousins and or uncles or aunts on the payroll doing various jobs, which 
knowing Elvis as we know him now, that's what you would expect. Right. He really cares. Wind noise again. The other person's what mind. Roy was saying is knowing Elvis as we know him now, that's what you'd expect. He really cared about the other person's well-being. I think because he knew what it was like to be in that boat. And he was now in a position to help. You know, just like when he comes back here in 56 to do this concert. It's his idea. He sees that land and the house he was born in for sale. And there's people that want to say, well, that's not the house he was born in. Elvis said, I see the house I was born in, and I think it's 13 to 14 acres is for sale. He gives the check the city paid him for performing back to our mayor and says, I want you to buy it and build a park for the kids of East Tupelo. He's 21 years old. Why does he care if there's a park for the kids of East Tupelo? How many 21-year-olds care about the kids? That tells me a lot about who he is. He comes back the following year in 57, finishes that concert, and hands that check to the mayor and says, now I want you to build a youth center for the kids of East Tupelo. Well, I was one of those kids of East Tupelo. I had my first dance at that youth center. It meant a lot to us. We never had a park. We never had a youth center. If we got to use those facilities, we had to go to um, what we call the city park over on Joyner. Never welcome because we were H.T. below kids. <laughs> but I just think for him to be that young and thinking about others says tons about him as a person. Yeah, certainly don't hear that today. Can you see Kid Rock doing something like that? Or just go down the list of all the entertainers we've known in, in our adult life. They just don't do stuff like that. Uh, maybe some, but it's very rare. I asked Mr. Turner if he could name birthplace to Graceland. And he said he couldn't do it off the top of his head, but he did give it a good attempt. Of course, stupid win got in the way again. But here's what he went. Birthplace. Elvis was born in the house that we all know today as the birthplace. I believe it's always set in that spot. All of my lifetime, it has set in that spot, and I'm 65. And I was going to it before anybody cared, and it was sitting in that spot. If it has been moved, it's only been moved a few feet. It's not like they moved it from half a mile down the road or anything, but I don't even think it's been moved a few feet. My dad, who was born in 1919, he said that house always sat in that spot. And he worked with Gladys and Aunt Lillian at the shirt factories. So, I mean, he knew them from, from a working relationship. When Elvis was three and Vernon goes to prison, they have to move to South Tupelo to Maple Street, where they're there about a year, maybe a year and a half at the most. After they leave South Tupelo, Vernon has saved up enough money to buy a house on Berry Street, which they live in for about a year. Then he sells it to his friend Aaron Kennedy, who he went to church with, and rents a house on Kelly. He rents from two to three houses on Kelly Street. They move from there, and if I'm not mistaken, my memory serves me right, they moved briefly for a while to a farm in Plantersville. Then they moved to what was known as Mulberry Alley. I don't know if Mulberry Alley is still on the maps in Tupelo or not, but the fairgrounds set back a bit off of Main, and then there were buildings on Main Street. And between those buildings and the fairgrounds was an alley, which is called Mulberry Alley. They lived there before they moved to 1010 North Green Street. Now those are the places that 
come to my mind readily. After they moved to Memphis, they lived in about as many or more houses than they did when they were in Tupelo. They were frequent movers. Because of work or? Well, the, the move from Tupelo to Memphis was to seek work. But when they're moving all around Tupelo, as near as I can tell, it was maybe they found something better for less money or the same money, or maybe they owed so much for this when they had to go because they got behind on their rent. And I'm assuming nobody's ever told me that. But for somebody to move that frequently, there's some reason. Kind of like trading a car in, in other yeah. words. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And when they left for Memphis, they left kind of sneaking out of town. I don't know if that was intentional or not, but that's the way it was perceived. The house on Maple Street, Kelly Street, as you come down Adams, I believe it is, Adams comes into Kelly on the west end of Kelly, and Kelly now dead ends, but it used to go into the old Satilla Road. There are two houses, and it's the very last one or the next to the last one, but I think it's the next to the last one. Then behind what we called Palmer's Big Star, there was a house there that they lived in for a while, which Buddy Palmer sold. And then there's 1010 North Green Street. Interesting story behind that. All right, real quick, before I keep going into what Roy was saying, Sam Bell is a childhood friend who um, I believe he still lives here in Tupelo. Um, I am dying to get an interview with him. Uh, I hope to do that. And when I do, or if I do, I pray I do, he will be on the podcast with us. Um, so I am really looking forward to hearing his side of this story. But this is what Roy says. Sam Bell showed me the lot, but the house has long been gone. Sam Bell was raised by his grandparents. His mother had moved to Chicago to work. His grandfather owned a lot of land and property on the north end of North Green Street. And if you're driving down North Green Street right before you get to the overpass going over McCullough, you'll see a little side street that's also named Green Street. And back further down, you'll see another side street that's named Green Street. Well, Green Street was rerouted, according to Sam, when McCullough became McCullough. It wasn't Highway 78 anymore. And then they built the overpass and everything and blah, blah, blah. But it's a corner lot now. I don't know if it was a corner lot when Elvis lived there or not, but that's where it sat. And Sam's house was just a little farther up. And then all that property where McCullough cuts through those hills, that was like a gully area. Sam said there was a creek. There were fruit trees all over the place. There were watermelon patches. There were strawberries growing. He said, we'd go out playing. We'd take Kool-Aid and play. And I didn't even realize they drank Kool-Aid back then. But anyway, he said they would take a jug of Kool-Aid and put it in the creek to keep it cool. Or he said they'd be playing and they'd go, depending on what season it was, get an apple or a peach or a watermelon and burst it open and eat it right there in the field. And they would play on those gullies all day. They'd play cowboys and Indians. But when they went up and down Green Street, if Elvis heard any kind of music, he was drawn to the music and left them hanging. That's how he wound up in the black church listening to the, the ladies rehearsing for the Sunday service. Uh, tent revival that they had every year. He went to it. Sam said if uh, there was one kid who had a piano, and when they'd go to his house, everybody was running in the kitchen to get something to drink, Kool-Aid, out of the refrigerator. Elvis would make a beeline for the living room to the piano. Sam said he'd be in there just banging away, and I said he couldn't play a note, but he'd just be in there banging away. And you've got to interview Sam. He tells these stories so wonderful. 
Now, an interesting story on the Berry Street house. You know when we moved the childhood church up to the birthplace, where it's set on Berry Street? They moved it from Berry Street up to the birthplace. Well, it originally set on Adam Street, or the church was on Adam Street. In 1957, either the church burned or the house on Berry Street burned. I forget the story, one or the other. But long story short, the church wound up being on Berry Street on the same lot that Vernon's house had stood on that he bought on Berry Street. I thought that was interesting. Wow. Yeah, that is. Another thing about that little East Tupelo community, it was a very uh, loving, nourishing community. Everybody looked after everybody's kids. Everybody would whip the other's child just as quick as their own, and, and the parent would say, more power to you. It was what we called a communal community in that if, because this is the way it was, if one person had a sewing machine, all the ladies had access to that sewing machine. If one person had a camera, everybody had access to that camera. If one person had a radio, and at that time they ran on batteries, they would bring them out on Saturday night on the front porch, and everybody that wanted to listen would gather around, and that's how they listened to the Grand Ole Opry as a community. Everybody knew everybody, and even when they moved to 1010 North Green Street, Sam Bell says it's the same way. You know, anybody up and down North Green would scold you if they saw you doing something, and you knew that your mama was going to know before you got home. <laughs> so that made it even worse. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that's the kind of nourishment that he grew up in. Another thing with Elvis, the whole time he lived in East Tupelo through fifth grade, I never heard anybody remember a story where he was made fun of or made to feel less than or made to feel untalented. Everybody was always building him up, how good he could sing and blah, blah, blah. When he makes that transition from East Tupelo to Tupelo and to Milam School in the sixth grade, that's when he first encounters rejection. The kids start running at recess when they see him coming with the guitar saying, oh God, he's gonna sing Old Shep again. And they're tired of hearing it. And he's not the most attractive young man at that age. I don't think any of us were at that age. And one of his fellow classmates told me that if you really wanted to make a girl mad, ride on the blackboard, Elvis loves Sue. And Sue gonna come find you and get you because she don't want her name written up there with Elvis. While at Milam, you know, some of the meaner boys, I guess, uh, got his guitar one day and broke all the strings. But the other classmates felt sorry for him and, and took some of their lunch money and bought him new strings. But that's when he first encountered rejection. The wonderful thing is he didn't let it slow him down. He just went on singing his song and doing his thing because it was so ingrained in him, I don't think he could have stopped if he had to. I really don't. Speaking of moving from East Tupelo to Tupelo, Brother Frank Smith's wife, Corinne, summed it up so well. She said, it's only a mile from East Tupelo to Tupelo, but it is a long mile. And she was speaking metaphorically. Sure. That uh, it's easy to, to make the mile across the levee but to ever be accepted, especially in that era. You were always one of those East Tupelo people, and Tupelo always looked down on East Tupelo as less than. East Tupelo was made up of people that moved from the farm to town to work in the factories, most of whom had worked as uh, sharecroppers. Tupelo was your more educated uh, shop owners, lawyers, doctors, nurses, 
students, teachers, professional people, for the most part. The funny thing I discovered that I didn't know until I met Sam was the difference in what we call the hill. You know the hill? That's what the black community's referred to okay. up on North Green because it's on a hill. And I think there's maybe even a sign there when you're coming off of um, 45 on the front, something about the hill. Then you had Shake Rack down under the hill. The people on the hill were shop owners, school teachers. There was a doctor, I'm not sure if there was a lawyer that lived there or not, but let's assume there was, professional people. They looked down their nose at people in Shake Rag. People in Shake Rag were your domestics. They were taking in washing for the white folks. They were cutting the white folks' yard. They either worked as porters on trains or they worked in the, um, the cattle barn where they sold the cows. And I just, I never realized that in both communities there was this class system. This is the very last part where the wind interfered. So you don't get to hear me as much now. <laughs> Roy had a really cool story that I must tell. He said, Sam married a girl from Shake Rag. And he said, you know, I couldn't call it Shake Rag. We called it Across the Tracks. Because if you lived on the hill, you called it Across the Tracks. Because if you called it Shake Rag and you wasn't from Shake Rag, you'd get your butt whooped by the boys from Shake Rag. Shake Rag was rowdy. That's where the blues singers, when they would come to town, they went to Shake Rag. They didn't go to the hill because Shake Rag had booze, women, gambling. It also had churches. It even had a daycare center. It was a thriving little community that has really been downplayed. It was a wonderful little community of the very poor people that made the best out of a, a not-so-hot situation. Um, but that class system existed in the black community just like it did in the white community. Maybe that's why Elvis related so to some of those people. I don't know. Uh, Bo Clanton, who passed away early part of last year or the latter part of 2016 was a few years older than Elvis and he told me about taking Elvis down into Shakerag. This would be when Elvis was uh, around 12, 13 years old to hear the music and Elvis actually got to meet and listen to Muddy Water down in Shakerag. So he, he heard country music, he heard blues, he heard that white Church of God, Assembly of God, Pentecostal gospel that sounds nothing like Baptist or Methodist or Church of Christ or Episcopalian or Presbyterian. And then he heard black gospel, which sounds nothing like any white gospel you've ever heard. Those were the sounds he heard and was absorbing and let gel. And then he spit out this whole new sound that revolutionized music. What part of that community exists today? Physically or people? Uh, oh. Okay. Well, physically, you know, Bancorp South Arena sits there and the, uh, all that stuff behind it. In the early 70s during urban renewal, you know, they burned it to the ground. Yeah. And they relocated all of those people to what we call the projects up on North Green. <laughs> and most of them were not thrilled to be getting a new house, new housing. Uh, they did have a very strong sense of community that they didn't want to lose. And this displacement, or whatever you want to call it, 
broke up that community. It was never what it was. Sam Bell's wife, Mary Jo, grew up in Shakerag. So she can tell you about growing up in Shakerag. Uh, and she can also tell you others. You know who Pat Raspberry was that worked for the CVB? Well, I used to help Pat. We would do these exhibits in the CVB, and uh, either the year she died or the year before, we did one on Shake Rag. And we had a committee of, of residents from Shake Rag that brought their stories and what few artifacts they had of that era. And I would like to see something done to memorialize Shake Rag more than it has been for a number of reasons. One, it was a very unique living situation for a group of people that were downtrodden and yet made the best of times out of the worst of times. They would have block parties where they would roast a pig in the middle of Shake Rag and everybody in that little community, which I don't think it was more than four or five streets, little blocks, would come and they would sing and eat and just have a good time. Uh, they lost that when they were relocated to the projects. And you know, Sam told me that uh, for all the good that integration brought, one of the downsides of integration was the Hill was a thriving community with all these black shop owners and all the community shopped there because they couldn't go into the white stores and shop. And once they had that option, uh, the black retailers just dried up and died. They didn't have enough uh, customers, you know, to keep the doors open. So it changed the face of that community. It changed the whole persona of that community. Now, it had to happen because we had to get integrated and we had to try to kill some of this hate. But I guess, you know, it's uh, there's give and take in everything. For what they gained, they also lost something very precious. Uh, just like when they moved these people from Shake Rag to the projects, although they got a nice new project home, uh, they lost that wonderful sense of community that they had had and shared and cherished. Roy Turner, I very much appreciate your time and uh, thank you much for well, you're welcome. Maybe sitting out here in a, in, in a beautiful day and, uh, and have, enjoying some time with you. <laughs> appreciate you coming. So that's it. I want to thank Mr. Roy Turner, who has, in my mind, become a very dear friend of mine. I uh, look forward to spending some time with him again. Uh, you know, maybe we can get together again and um, do another segment. I'm sure I'll be thinking of something that I need to say. You will be hearing from Mr. Turner again later in episodes to come. So be listening out for that. Again, subscribe to this podcast. I do hope you are enjoying it as much as I am bringing it to you. Next time on Shaping Elvis, we're going to be talking about the birth. Y'all come back, send me something on Facebook, give me your stories. I still want to hear those. Didn't get any this time, so where are you at? I'd be reading them right now. Send them to me. I'll be happy to read them here, and I look forward to hearing them. So until next time, this is Josh Ward for Shaping Elvis, saying Elvis may have left the building, but he's still in our hearts. Bye. Shaping Elvis is produced and edited by me, Josh Ward, executive producer Jason Lee Esri. It is a production of WTVA Podcasts. The views and opinions you hear on the show belong to me and my guests and don't necessarily reflect those of WTVA, parent company Heartland Media, or WLOV. Thank you. 
and good night. You've been listening to Shaping Elvis. Josh Ward, you do a great job, brother. Great job. Fantastic. Shaping Elvis with Josh. (laughs)